Turn your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4. And uh, while you're turning there, I just wanted to thank everybody who helped with the Santa breakfast yesterday. Um, if you weren't here, we had about 200 plus uh, people here. And uh, it was just amazing how everybody came together and uh, worked hard and uh, just made it go as smoothly as possible. So for those of you who helped, I'm so grateful for you. Um, thankful for uh, your ministry. So we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4 today. I uh, only have a couple more weeks in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, today we're looking at verses 1 uh, to 11 of chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past... Uh, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, even though that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, this week we were reminded that life is short as two of our church members went home to be the Lord, Cindy and Roz. Whether it's the death of a loved one, a near-death experience, an accident, some other tragedy, there are events in our lives that remind us of the fragility of life. And how at each moment, our life could be taken away from us. When I was young, my parents and I were in a severe car accident. All of us were severely injured. And uh, I was maybe 8 or 10. I don't remember exactly how old. So I didn't really process it the same way as, uh, as an adult would. But I remember my dad telling me after that, until this day, he told me how that event changed the, his priorities and my mom's priorities of what was important and what would matter. Today we're focusing on the second half of the passage that I just read. And as we look at this passage, we see that Peter tells us that the end of all things is at hand. The end is near. And we know that any moment God could come back, at any moment we could step into eternity. So in light of that, how do we live our lives? Now, you might think to yourself, well, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago, and he said the end is near. Does that mean he was confused? Does that mean that he didn't understand what was going on? Well, I think when Peter is saying this, when he says the end of all things that is, is at hand, he's saying the end, we're in the end stages of God's redemptive story. The Messiah has come. He has lived a perfect life. He's risen from the dead. And there's nothing else that is left except for him to come back. The Scriptures are pretty clear in telling us that first, no man knows the hour when Jesus will come back. 
If anyone says that they have the hour, the date, when Jesus is going to come back, they're not of God. So nobody knows the hour. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 40, it says that you also must be ready, Jesus says, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So in light of that, in, in light of the fact that we could step into eternity today right after church, even right now, in light of the fact that Christ could come back at any moment, how do we live our lives? How should we respond to the fact that the end is near? I think this passage teaches us first that living with the end in mind means focusing on the things that matter. It means focusing on the things that matter. But then the second question that arises from that, what, what are the things that matter? What are the things that are worthwhile given the amount of time that we may or may not have on this earth? Now you might think, if we say the end is near, that you should go out and do something extraordinary. You should go start a foundation. Or maybe you should just live it up. You should go and have an exotic vacation. Do things that maybe you've been afraid to do. But the things that Peter calls us to do are not extraordinary things. They're ordinary, commonplace things. Things that we might even consider to be boring. Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, was once asked, so what would you do or how would you live your life if you knew that Jesus was coming back today? And he responded and he said, I'd, be, I'd do two things. I would plant a tree and I would pay my taxes. And I said those two things to indicate that he was just going to continue the life that he was already living. That each day he was already living in light of eternity. And so he was just going to simply do what he had planned for the day. So I think throughout Scripture it's clear that when we're talking about living with the end in mind, God's not calling us to do something extraordinary, to do something crazy. He's calling us to do ordinary things and do them well. So what are these things that Peter is calling us to do in light of the end and of the fact that the end is near. He gives us four things in this passage. First thing that he tells us that matters, that's worthwhile, is prayer. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, from a worldly perspective, when we think about the end of the world, the world thinks, live it up. Throw restraint to the wind. Indulge a little bit. Enjoy yourself. After all, pretty soon the world's going to end. It, it, it indicates living like the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Gentiles do. In sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawlessness. I mean, there's, there's nothing left. There's no planning for the future. Let's just live it up because soon the end is coming. Let's drink and be married for tomorrow we die. But the Christian ethic is completely different. Peter says, since the world is coming to an end, you need to live wisely. You need to live soberly. You need to live self-controlled lives. Don't indulge the flesh. And the reason that you're not to do these things, the reason that you're to be self-controlled and sober-minded is for the sake of your prayers. Peter says we shouldn't try to intoxicate ourselves with the things of the world. Because the things of this world are coming to an end. Scholar Karen Jobes puts it this way. She says that Peter's command is that we should have a clear and sober mind. That we should have a clear and sober mind, not indulging our, the passions of the flesh, not indulging in sin, but living righteously for God so that we would understand what's important 
And that would inform how we pray. Knowing that the time is coming when soon we'll stand before the judge of the living and the dead. And so when we get a glimpse of the end, when we're thinking sober-mindedly with a clear mind, it will facilitate our prayers and that we, when we realize that time is short, we'll pray for our loved ones who don't know Jesus. It will encourage our prayers as we pray for the end of injustice. It will encourage our prayers as we pray that God would give us the strength to represent Him faithfully in a crooked and sinful world. There's a prayer that an ancient writer wrote named Thomas Merton. And I think it exemplifies the prayer that we ought to pray or the mindset that we ought to have as believers in Christ when we recognize that the end is coming. It says, My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have the desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I'll never do anything that, apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may not know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you, always though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me. And you will never leave me to face my perils alone. So in light of the end, in light of the fact that Christ is coming soon, in, the, in light of that, we need to be driven to prayer. To think sober-mindedly. Live self-controlled lives. Knowing that God is coming back soon. Second thing that Peter tells us is worthwhile, that matters, is love. Love is something that is of God and is eternal. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Love is of God, and love is something that endures forever. And Peter tells us in this passage, Above all, love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now what does Peter mean when he says that love covers a multitude of sins? When you love somebody a lot, you can overlook some of their shortcomings. Now that doesn't mean that we never speak the truth to somebody. That doesn't mean that we don't that we enable or condone sinful behavior. But it means that when we love one another earnestly, love can make up for our shortcomings. Love can kind of minimize the effects of sin in our lives. Because the truth is, our sin and our actions affect one another for good and for bad. There's a researcher at MIT University, actually a meteorologist. His name was Edward Lorenz, and he was doing some research in 1961. And while he was doing this research, he found that if he changed just little uh, insignificant or seemingly insignificant numbers in his data, it could potentially create uh, massive shifts in the outcome. He first called this the sensitive dependence on initial data theory, but later he simply termed it, termed it the butterfly effect. In 1972, he presented a scientific paper entitled Predictability, Does the Flap of a Butterfly's Wings in Brazil Set Off a Tornado in Texas? According to his theory, it wasn't that a butterfly's flap of its wings actually caused a tornado, but that 
a butterfly's wings had the potential to have a kind of ripple effect that it would affect one thing, that would affect another, that would affect another, that would eventually create a tornado. Each time someone sins against us, there's an effect to that. We can't stop whether somebody sins against us. We can't stop other people's sin. But we can choose what we're going to do in response to their sin. When they, someone sins against us, we can respond by retaliating, by lashing out in violence, by choosing to sin ourselves, justifying the fact that we've been sinned against. And when we do that, we kind of perpetuate the cycle. And we create more of a cycle of sin. We keep the sin cycle going so that if it keeps going, it eventually results in a, like a tornado. But when we choose to love one another earnestly, those little things, those sins, we can stop them in their tracks. We can stop that cycle of sin and stop sin from impacting the body of Christ. So Peter says love can cover a multitude of sins. It can minimize the effects of sin in your life if you just love one another. Third, Peter tells us that another thing that matters is hospitality. Now when you think about this, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I can see prayer as being important. I can see um, love as being important, but hospitality, that's not something that we think about as being something that really matters. We've, something that we don't really talk about a whole lot in our culture. But in, the, in Peter's world, in the ancient world, hospitality was, was very, very important. Even for people who weren't Christians. Um, in the ancient world, there weren't motels and hotels. There were, there were some here and there, but more, more or less, there weren't many hotels and motels. If you were traveling, it wasn't like you could stop at the grocery store or stop at a restaurant to get food. You were really dependent upon the people in the village to which you were going. And so... Because of this dependence, this kind of code of hospitality uh, came about. And it was expected that you would provide for those people who were visitors, who were strangers in your midst. It was thought that you would provide for them, provide food, provide shelter, provide protection for a stranger uh, whenever they would come into your village. To deny a stranger hospitality would have been considered very dishonorable. And I think what happened in essence in regard to hospitality is that when you showed hospitality to a stranger, it was almost like you were treating a stranger as if he or she was a friend or treating a foreigner as if he or she was a family member. That's kind of the essence of what hospitality was, treating a, friend, a foreigner as a friend or as a family member. So we live in a very different culture today. Obviously, we don't just open our doors and just say, oh, whoever wants to come in, just come on in and spend the night. Probably not the safest thing to do. But how does this hospitality uh, command apply to us in the 21st century? I think that the principle that we can glean from this is that as believers, we need to care for those who are different from us. Care for those who are strangers. Care for those who are vulnerable. I don't know if you've ever gone to a different part of the country or to a different country itself, and maybe if, it, if the culture was very different there, maybe you felt a little bit lost in, in living there or visiting there. I uh, took a, a semester of seminary at Southern Seminary in Louisville, and it was a beautiful campus, 
And uh, more or less, people were very uh, kind and, uh, and generous there. But there was something about it, and it was kind of, it's kind of hard to explain. But it was a very different place, a very different place than Buffalo. And so, while everyone was nice, I still felt like I was an outsider. I'll give you one example. For example, here, uh, many of us after church will probably watch the Bills game uh, or watch the Sabres later today. I don't know if they're playing or not. A lot of us like the Bills or like professional football. But there, it was like the idea that that you would watch Buffalo Bills or really any professional football, they thought of it as kind of strange that anyone would do something like that. If they were going to watch sports, it would probably be college sports. And so that's just one example. And there were kind of a million and other things like that where it was just like, where am I? You know, I, I don't feel like I fit in here. And I remember one particular person, another guy who was a seminary, who was a little bit older than me, uh, he kind of took me under his wing. And uh, he'd give me rides to the airport if I needed a ride. And we'd play sports together. And I remember you know, going over to his house, watching a movie with his wife. And even though in general I felt like an outsider there in Louisville, when I was with him, I felt almost like a family member. And I think that's kind of what God is calling us to do as believers. We're called to care for those who are lost, care for those who are out of place, care for those who are strangers, care for those who are different than us. Now, working out the particulars of that in our lives may be difficult. You'll have to kind of wrestle with that on your own. But a couple questions that maybe we can consider. When people enter into your home, do they feel more like friends and family, or do they feel more like strangers? But more importantly, when people enter into the doors of our church, do they feel more like family, friends, or do they feel more like strangers? Peter tells us that hospitality is very important. That's something we should strive for, to care for those who are vulnerable, care for those who are lost. And then he gives us one final thing that he says is important. He tells us the final thing that's important is stewardship. The Webster's Dictionary defines stewardship this way, as the conducting, supervising, or managing something, especially the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various various grace. God has given each of us different gifts to use for His honor and for His glory. Each of us have been created differently but perfectly and woven together into one body that the body would function together as a unity. Paul tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, The body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? The whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So each of us have different gifts that God has given us. And some of us, maybe we wonder what our gifts are. Some of us say, well, I don't think I have any gifts. Well, if you're a believer, God has given you gifts. And what's interesting in talking to people, sometimes I can see their gift clearly, and they'll come to me and say, I don't think I have any gifts. 
And it's like, it's what you're doing. I can see God using you and using your gift and impacting people for the gospel. And we don't always know our gifts, but each of us has a gift. Even each of us has something to offer to those in the body of Christ. Now, if you give somebody a gift, uh, most of the time, they'll probably be grateful for the gift, say, tell you thank you for the gift. Um, but the real test of a gift, if someone likes a gift, gift is if they use it. I remember when I was uh, first dating Stephanie, I got her a present that wasn't the greatest of presents when I was thinking back on it now, but she was grateful for it and certainly didn't want to hurt my feelings, so she you know, said thank you and whatnot. But as time went on, I found that she never, ever used the gift. And some of us are like that in regards to the gifts that God has given us. We are grateful for the gifts. We say that we appreciate the gifts, but we don't use them. We don't use them for God's glory. We don't use them to their, to, to their potential. Remember the story of the talents. Remember the parable that Jesus gave to us. Now a talent was quite a bit of money. And there was one man that was given one talent. One man who was given two talents. One man who was given five talents. The person that was given five talents, uh, after his ma- their, the master went away, he invested the two talents. When the master came back, there was two more. So he made four for the master. Four in total. The one person who had been given five talents. He invested the money, and when the master returned, there was five more talents, so ten talents in total. But the person who had been given one, the servant who had given, been given one talent, he took and he buried the talent in the ground. And so when the master returned, he brought out his one talent and said, Here, here's what you gave me. And listen to what Jesus says, of the, that the master says to this man in the parable. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God gives us gifts so that might be a blessing to those around us. And no matter what gifts He's given us, we should, give those, we should use those gifts with every, every bit of strength that we have. As He says in this passage, the one who speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. The one who serves is the one who serves with God's strength. No matter what our gifting is, whether we think it's small or significant, no matter where we are on that, we should give everything that we have. We should use our gifts with everything that we have for God's glory. And as we do that, as we're faithful with the gifts that He's given us, He'll expand our influence, expand perhaps even our gifting, expand the opportunities that He gives us to reach people for the gospel and to impact His body. There's a pastor named Ken Shigematsu, and he shares a story about his wife's family. And they had a little pet chipmunk named Forte. Uh, his wife's family grew up loving animals, and they would often rescue stray cats, stray dogs, um, all different animals that were in need. And uh, one day, 
they found this little chipmunk, and it was the runt of the litter, and the vet said that um, it probably wouldn't survive because it was so weak. And so they decided they would try to take it under their wing, try to raise it to health. And as they fed it and took care of it, it not only survived, but it became strong and survived. When uh, Sakiko, Ken's uh, wife, would come back to the apartment after, at the evening after work, Forte would wake up excitedly and do figure eights around the apartment, happy to see uh, Sakiko home. Or when Sakiko was working on her computer at home, Forte would scamper up and down the keyboard, pressing on random characters. Sakiko noticed that Forte would take his most treasured possessions, his walnuts, and he would place them where he slept, guarding and protecting them. Apparently, this was kind of a hibernation instinct. But as his relationship with Sakiko developed, he began to take half of his walnuts and put them under her pillow. He somehow came to understand that Sakiko was the one who provided for him and was his family. So out of gratitude, he wanted to share with her what he had so freely been given. Pastor Shigematsu says this, God has given us all things, and he calls on us to use what he has given for his glory. God has given us gifts, and we just need to respond by giving those gifts back to him, using them for his glory and for his honor. Living with the end in mind means focusing on the things that matter. Peter tells us the things that matter are prayer, love, hospitality, stewardship. And if we sum those things up, if we try to encapsulate those, I think they're encapsulated by a passage in Luke chapter 10, 25 to 27. A lawyer stood up to test Jesus. What shall I do to inherit eternal life, he said. He said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, do this, and you will live. That's what it's about. Living with the end of mind means loving God with all of our hearts, with all of our strength, with all of our mind, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. God isn't calling us to do something extraordinary. He's calling us to do simple things. Whether we have one day left or 50 years left, He's calling us to do the same thing. Loving Him and loving people. Let's pray. God, I pray that You would teach us to number our days that we might have a heart of wisdom. God, I pray that we would live each day focusing on the things that matter. Loving you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our strengths. And loving the people that you've put around us. God, I pray that we would not be caught into cycles of sin. That we would not live as the Gentiles do. Indulging the flesh, indulging our sinful desires. But that we would be clear-minded sober-minded, that we would run to you in prayer, praying for the things that matter, praying that your will would be done, praying that people 
would come to see you and the greatness of who you are. God, I pray that we would be a people of hospitality, Lord. That when people enter our church, that they would feel more like friends and family than strangers. God, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you that the only reason we can love you, the only reason that we can serve you, serve others, is because you first loved us, because you paid the ultimate price for our sins on the cross. And God, in response, we just want to love you, and we want to serve you, and we want to serve your people. And we pray that you just give us the strength to do that through your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.